I want to say happy Father's Day to all of you dads. Um, thank you so much, so much for everything you're doing, you've been doing. And uh, I just want to challenge us as dads. You know, our problem, I wouldn't say that, uh, probably if I could read the room well, is that we're pretty good at bringing income into our families, paying our bills as dads. I think most dads are comfortable doing that and love doing that, especially if you have young kids, you know, getting out of the house. But I think what we can work on and what thing I want to challenge you to get better at, because that's what I'm, God is doing in my heart, is to grow as spiritual leaders of our homes. Our jobs bless this life. But being spiritual leaders of our homes impact eternity. And I think the best two ways for our dads, all the dads here, how you can lead your family. Number one, I challenge you to become a prayer warrior. Bring your kids, bring your wife to Jesus daily, interceding on their behalf. Number two, learn and find a way to do devotions as a family, maybe once a week, maybe even once a month. Just get the family together, open the Bible, do your best to read some passages, pray with your children, pray with your wife, and you will impact their eternity. I was reading in Timothy, and I was shocked by what I read. He says, Paul writing to Timothy says these things, keep careful watch on yourself and on your teaching." For so by doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And I want to say God is gracious to bless us in this endeavor. If we ask God for his power and strength and wisdom as dads, he will bless us. For it is his delight to bless us. That is my challenge. Be spiritual leaders of your home. Let me pray with us. For we're going to get into the Bible. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. God, during this worship, I was reminded at the impossibility of counting all the ways you have been good to our church, to our body, to our lives. I want to thank you. Lord, would you help us be better dads? Would you help us uh, be more like you in our homes, leading our families to you, Jesus? Bless this word, bless our hearts, amen. All right, so today it's historic because we are finally going to chapter two of Mark. <laughs> it's been a long time, it's been a long time, I've, I've, I've enjoyed it uh, and I hope you have enjoyed it, but um, I want to talk to you about where we have been. You're like, oh no, we're going to repeat chapter one, yes we are, and I'm going to talk about where we're going the next five weeks, because five weeks is really when we're going to wrap up with the gospel of Mark. And this is so key, and this is so key. And I believe this is going to help you. This is going to help me uh, grow in our likeness to Jesus. Chapter one had all the highlights. I love ESPN top 10. I love watching highlights of F1. That's my, my jam. That's what I do. I just watch highlights. And uh, Chapter one of Mark was a highlight reel of the best shots. Let me just go over them. John the Baptist comes on the scene. And he says, prepare the way of the Lord. Next scene, 
Jesus shows up. Jesus gets baptized. And God from heaven, the Father, says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then we find that Jesus is fasting and Jesus is in the wilderness combating devil and defeating him in his tempt- while he was tempted. Jesus comes out of the wilderness and begins to proclaim the good news of our Savior, that the good news has come. Repent and trust in him. Jesus calls four disciples. Jesus is at synagogue. He's preaching with authority. Jesus then casts out a demon. That afternoon, Jesus is at Peter's Peter's house, healing his mother-in-law. That evening, the whole city, Capernaum, is at the door, and Jesus is healing all of them. And then Jesus prays all night, and chapter 1 ends with Jesus healing the leper. How's that sound, Mercy? Jesus is on a roll. Way to go, Jesus. That's awesome. Now, chapter 2, we're going to find for the first time Jesus is going to be opposed. Because anywhere the kingdom of God is advancing, opposition rises as well. Until chapter 2, everything has been smooth and sailing. But in chapter 2, opposition arises. And that's a lesson for us. For when you, as a minister of Jesus, live a life of ministry, in your work, in your home, in your marriage, in your schools, and you seek to do the will of God and live in his will, you will see opposition. Opposition may come in the form of racked up and cranked up temptations. Oppositions may come in the form of lies being sown in your mind and you're wrestling with all sorts of doubts and whether this is your calling, whether you're saved, whether God exists and you're like, where did this come from? Opposition may come in the form of discouragement with results or lack thereof or a discouragement, side comment from someone from your family. But I just want you to know, (laughs) if you are in the will of God, and you are opposed, take that as a highest compliment that you are on the right track. And so Jesus is being opposed. Now, how is Jesus being opposed in chapter 2? Let me give you the overview. There are five scenes in this chapter. And in each scene, the authorities or even the crowd comes to oppose Jesus. First scene, Jesus forgives The authorities don't like that. They call that blasphemy. Scene two, Jesus is eating and dining with sinners. Authorities do not like Jesus dining with sinners. How dare Jesus associate himself with unclean, impure, such people. Scene three, the crowds come and say, Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting? You know, everybody else fasts. Why aren't they fasting? Jesus responds to that. Scene four, Jesus' disciples are going through the field of grains and they start to plug the grains of, uh, yeah, plug the heads of grain because they're hungry. Except they're doing this on a Sabbath. And in Judaism, you do not work on Saturday. 
And so the religious authorities come to Jesus and say, Jesus, how dare you basically relax the rules? And scene five is Jesus healing a man with a withered hand. And let me show you how chapter three, verse six ends. It ends this way. After all of this opposition, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. In the next five weeks, we're going to develop a portrait of what religious people are like. Religious people. Now you might say, wait, aren't we religious as well? Uh, By religion, I mean people who know all the right things, know everything what they ought to say, do all the right things, and have none of the heart in it. I'm going to give you four things real quick, what religious people are like, and we're going to develop this over the next weeks. Religious people always have a problem with God's grace. They like to decide who's in and who's out, who's qualified and who's disqualified, who's too dirty, sorta, and good. Religious people have problem with God's grace. They always want to manage the distribution supply of who God can bless and touch. Second, religious people or for religious people, devotion to prayer, to fasting, to going to church, to tithing, all of these things. We could call them spiritual disciplines. For religious people, devotion to spiritual disciplines is for the purpose of performance and not a relationship. They do so to impress and not to deepen their relationship with Jesus. Religious people, they love prayer for the wrong reason. They love to read the Bible for the wrong reason. Number three, religious people are about rule worship rather than ruler worship. They fall in love with rules and not the ruler. They love laws and not the law giver. We'll see that in the Bible. And last, we see that religious people consistently choose rules over compassion they know nothing about compassion they make no room or space for compassion now what we're going to do here is we're not going to create a portrait of religious leaders and and be like wow look at them sucks for them how could they no that's not the goal the goal is that we would put a portrait of religious leaders of pharisees and ask the question where am I most like the Pharisee? God, what are, what are the tendencies in my heart? Having no, known Jesus, gone to church for many years, what are the, where am I most like the Pharisee? And God, would you search my heart? Would you know my heart? God, would you bring to the surface things that are hidden and covered and I have blind spots too so that I can be restored? Oh, I want us to grow. I want us to be like the people of Jesus, gentle and full of truth. So that's the next five weeks. We're going to see the opposition to Jesus. But today, we're going to jump into verse 1 through 12, and we're going to study this text. 
This is scene one where Jesus is opposed. Let me read to you. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Did you know that Jesus had a home? Such a cool thing, right? Most people say it was Peter's house. Jesus was renting Peter's house. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. So I'm going to make one comment, and then I'll move to the whole story. Listen. At this church, we want to do and practice hospitality. We live in a world of crazy loneliness. Just just heartbreaking anxiety. As Christians, we're called to hospitality, opening up our doors to each other, to strangers, to neighbors, around our dinner tables. That's what we're called to do, and that's what I challenge all of our leaders to do, is open up our homes. And let me make this point. It's okay if your home is not Pinteresty. It's okay if your home doesn't look like Instagram. Make the main attraction of your home be Jesus. When Jesus is at Peter's house, which we think, everybody comes. He's the attraction. You know what that means for us? is that in our homes, we honor Christ. We honor one another. We bless one another. And in there, and then, so Jesus is there, and that he becomes our attraction. So, I won't comment anymore. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This passage breaks down into three beautiful and important points. They are this. We see here in the first five verses the necessity of community. The necessity of community. Verses 6 through 11, we see both physician, both physical and spiritual restoration are found in Christ. And verse 12, we see the transformation of the paralytic man. Let's go, let's talk about the first point. We see that this man being paralyzed has four friends. 
He has buddies. And it has the kind of buddies that have their thinking on straight. The kind of buddies that want the best for him. And these buddies come and bring him on a bed to Jesus' home. And they can't get in. They can't get in. So what do they do? They climb the side of the house, which apparently every house had a side roof, side stairs. And they get to the top, and they start digging the roof and make a hole in the roof. And there's tiles, they use clay, sod. That's why there's digging. And they lower this man down. And Jesus heals and forgives. But do you notice that he needed community? Do you notice that his restoration wouldn't have been possible without Christian friends? Do you notice that his restoration wouldn't have been possible without, we could call it, and I know it's a little anachronistic, Christian community? The necessity of community for our restoration. The necessity of Christian community for others' restoration. Let me give you three points under Christian community. Good community. Here are three characteristics of Christian community. Here are three characteristics of incredible friends. If you ever want to have good friends, this is it. You want to have friends like these four guys. There are three things. Number one, they knew that they themselves couldn't save. (laughs) They knew that they by themselves couldn't save this paralytic man. Mercy Church, what our city needs, what our neighborhood needs, and what our friends need, and maybe what you need, is people who know they can't save. They can't figure out heart change. They can't just dial up a method and change people. Now, you might say, Eugene, that's such an easy thing to believe. Are you serious? No, think about this. Think about the age we live in. Think about all the breakthroughs, remarkable sophistication, all the technologies we have, all the self-help books we have. That's a $13 billion industry. Think about all the psychological tools we have, the DIYs, the YouTube. I think more so than ever, ever, ever in human history, the temptation for us is to forget That you and I aren't the heroes. To forget that you and I cannot save. We cannot figure out change. Now that's important. That's, you know, do you know what I need? I need friends who are like, look, I can't save you, buddy. I need that. You know what you need? Friends who can say, listen, thank you for coming with me with your problem, whatever. I can't change you. Because too many times we forget that. And we start tinkering. And we start believing that we can change people. And let me tell you why that's so good. Because a lot of you are afraid of being a friend of somebody who has problems. And the first reason why you're afraid of being their friend is because you say things like, I don't know what to say. Now, the reason you say that is because you're carrying with it a pressure to figure life change out. The reason you say, I don't know what to say, and therefore I'm not going to help people. 
I'm not going to get involved with people. I'm not going to be a helper. I'm not going to be somebody who encourages, because I don't know what to say. Here's the reality. You're not supposed to know. You don't know what to say. They realize, man, we don't have how to help him. If one of those four friends says, oh, wait a moment, I remembered something my so-and-so tried, my grandma tried, home remedy, let me work it up here, let's see if we could heal you, they would never come to Jesus. Healing begins when we as friends and as a community realize we can't change. But here's the second characteristic of good friends and good community. It has faith that says, if we could just get him to Jesus, <laughs> all right? So you got to follow the, the, the line here. We can't change this guy, but we have all the faith in us that if I could just, if we could just get this paralytic man in front of Jesus, then he'll take care of the rest. That's what Christian's friend, Christian community does. It says, I can't save you, but I know someone who can. You know what Christians were supposed to do? We're supposed to set up the date. And sometimes we forget and be the date. <laughs> You're just setting up the date. You're setting up the date between a need and the gospel. The gospel of Jesus it is powered unto change. It is powerful to save. But you know what we like to do? We like to be smart. We like to be wise. We like to recommend books, which, by the way, God bless us means all the time. But fundamentally, you and I need to realize all we're doing is setting up a date. Christian friends realize, if I could just get this person to Jesus... It is hyper-focused on that singular encounter between paralytic man and Jesus. You know, our city needs a church that believes in the power of God to change others. And you know what I have realized over years? I have lost faith. When I look around and see the issues around or look at my life and see the issues and we lose faith in the fact that if we could just get someone to encounter the risen Christ in his glory, in his love, he'll take it from there. Do you believe? Do you believe for your friends that the singular most important thing you can do is bring them into an encounter with God? Parents, dads, I know we want a lot for our kids, but the single greatest thing I can want is to bring them into encounter with Jesus. Because when that happens, everything changes. I can't change anyone. You can't change anyone, but we all know someone who can and our mission and our goal ought to be, how do I get him to Jesus? How do I get him to Jesus? Number three characteristic of Christian community is their willingness to not take, to take, not take no for an answer. They're tearing up the roof. Every single one of us needs Christians who can do that. When there are obstacles to bringing you into an encounter with Jesus, they don't stop. Friends who are committed to getting you to Jesus. This is the one polite, one no we don't accept. 
all right? <laughs> and what this means is you got, they're creative. They're tearing up the roof. I mean, nobody else thought of that. They're tearing up the roof. Why? They don't take no for an answer. Man, can you imagine being the kind of church that wants others to encounter Jesus and doesn't take no for an answer? We'll be creative. We'll figure it out, but that's the mission. Three characteristics of Christian community. When we know we can't save or figure out heart change, but we know and have faith that if we could just get them to Jesus, everything will change. Three, willingness to keep going and be committed to this happening. And so here's what happens, Mercy. Look now in verse five. And Jesus saw their faith. Okay, if you have a Bible, I want you to circle that a hundred times. Saw. Jesus saw their faith. That's remarkable. How could you see faith? Now remember, just a little bit lower, Jesus perceives in his spirit the thoughts others have. And from what I know, faith kind of resides in us. But here, Jesus, with his physical eyes, sees faith. You know what that means? That faith believes what is invisible, but faith dare not stay invisible. Let me put it this way for you on the screen. Faith believes in what is unseen, but faith is always seen. Faith believes in what is unseen, but faith is always seen. Faith always produces actions that speak of its genuineness. Trust is an action word. You know this. You know this, that trust is an action word. When you or I trust each other, we expect behavior to follow in line with that, right? So it's thinking about an example, not true, just hypothetical. If Albina, my wife, is going on a three-day vacation to a women's conference. And she entrusts me with the sole duties of taking care of my infant son for three days. And she gives him to me. She says, you know what, sweetie, you take care of him. And she trusts me. And then she flies to Indianapolis. And then every 15 minutes in the morning, she's checking in on me. Hey, did you guys wake up? No, we're dead. <laughs> hey, did you change his diaper? Hey, did you feed him? Hey, did you go for a walk? Hey, did you come? I would say, sweetie, do you trust me? You don't trust me because trust is an action word. So let me ask you this. Is your faith seen? Are there demonstrable activities and behaviors that come back to prove that you really do trust in Jesus? The fact that Jesus saw their faith is a glorious truth because what it means is that when these four friends lowered Jesus, excuse me, lowered the paralytic man down the roof, they saw, Jesus saw actions that proved the genuineness of their trust. So let me wrap up verses one through five with this. Some of you are in a season where you need four friends like this. Some of you are in a season where you can be and ought to be a friend like these. 
Let me repeat that. Some of you are in a season right now where you need friends like these. And some of you are in a season where you can be a friend like this. You can be this friend. You can believe in the power of God to change, to help, and you're there to assist. You're there to point people in that direction. Let me take this moment and advertise our discipleship groups. It so happens that in October, we're going to begin discipleship groups in our church. And it so happens that the perfect number is five. Five people per group, which means you have four friends. You have four friends. And what I would love for us to do, and you think about this, is would you join one? You need community, and it's for you. It's for everybody. And what do you do in this hyper group? Well, you're, you're just like everybody else, so nobody's Navy SEAL Christian. We're just Christians following Jesus, and we're trying to read the Bible, and we're trying to pray for one another. We meet once a week for an hour and discuss the Bible reading plan. I tell you this because your growth in Christ is dependent on Christian community. There is a necessity of Christian community. You know that commitment lasts longer in community. This is why when you go work out, you get a gym buddy. Anybody? I don't, because I don't work out. But uh, <laughs> this is why people do that. People do that. So I want to encourage you, painting a vision here for our church. You need four friends. And you can be that friend, and you need that friend when you don't know what to do. S- second point, verses 5 through 11 both physical and spiritual restoration are found in Jesus. Look at verses five. Jesus says these words. Jesus saw their faith and he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. How remarkable. Jesus in this moment meets this man's greatest need. I don't think so, and I I don't know, I can't, I only can speculate. I don't think they were coming and bringing this man necessarily for repentance. Jesus goes beyond the physical need and gives this man and meets this man with his greatest need. Do you know what our greatest need is? Forgiveness. Forgiveness from our maker. Do you know that every single one of you and every single person on this planet has a relationship with their creator? You do. You were made by him. And that puts you in a relationship with him. Now that relationship could be a relationship that's kind of scary because the Bible speaks of a relationship, a relationship of enemies. Or you can be reconciled to him in a relationship of peace through his son. You see, all of our sins, all of our mistakes, all of our short, uh, falling short of the glory of God puts us out of, relationship, out of the right relationship with God. But Jesus brings us back. He's the one who is able to forgive you for all of your sins. I love how Jesus meets him. Now, I want to ask this question. Is this a big deal that Jesus forgives this man? Absolutely. Here's reason number one. Forgiveness was only possible at this time at the temple. 
So Jesus is outside the temple in Galilee, which is north of Jerusalem, forgiving that there was no such thing in Israel, forgiveness outside of the temple, outside of the sacrificial system. I believe Jesus is showing us here that he is that sacrifice that can pay for our sins. Number two, we see that only God can forgive. Now look at what people or the scribes think in their hearts in verse 7. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're right. What you hope and what I would hope is when these scribes recognize that only God can forgive and Jesus just forgave, their conclusion is Jesus is God. (laughs) Their conclusion is the opposite. (laughs) When they say God can only forgive and Jesus just forgave, their conclusion is he is blaspheming. Just think about how wild this is that Jesus forgives sins. I can forgive you for sins you've committed against me. You can forgive me for sins I've committed against you. But nobody can come around and say, hey, your sins over there between each other, forgiven that's jesus all right jesus is forgiving sins Uh, only god can do that what exactly that's the point he is god and how does he provide for our forgiveness how does he pay for our repent uh, for our sins here's the thing church and this is so huge and and this is so important jesus doesn't just sweep up the sins under the rug never to worry about them. God doesn't forgive sins just by overlooking them. Like, ah, I won't pay attention to that. No. Let's just talk a little bit, okay? If in the court, uh, say Kent, yeah, courtroom of Kent, somewhere downhill, we learn that there's a judge. Now this judge is a little funky. He started to forgive and waive everybody their crime. Just everybody. Tickets, shoplifting, on and on and on. He's just like, hey, you got this problem? Wave. I mean, what would happen to us? Listen, I don't protest, but I think I would go there. I'm not political, but I would get into politics because we would say something is really fishy with this judge. You can't just do that. You can't just wave people's crimes like that all the time for everybody. Are you being bought out? I mean, where's this? we have the sense of justice, right, and fairness. I think about how we are made in the image of God. And one of the biggest things I have found in my kids is not their love, is not their kindness, it's fairness. Fairness is the name of the game. Why? They're made in God's image. I remember I was at Home Depot not too long ago, and I was walking through an aisle, and I heard some commotion at the entrance or ex- ex- whatever, exit, and somebody was shoplifting. And I kind of looked, you know, because it's interesting at that point. And so I'm like, what is going on? And I saw the worker from Home Depot, a lady, hold on to the cart with merchandise in there. And the thief is trying to, like, pull the cart from her. And she's fighting him with a tug of cart back and forth. So that guy gives up, eventually takes a couple of boxes and flees. And I'm thinking, now I'm driving, I'm thinking, wow, what a hero. I wish I could do that. And then I'm thinking, like, wow, why would she do that? Like, Home Depot, 
losing a couple hundred dollars of merchandise is just losing a drop in the Pacific Ocean. Like they, they've got money. Not only that, but you're not encouraged to do that. You put yourself in danger. You know why she did that? Fairness. She's fed up. And we get that. And so here's my question. How can God just forgive sins? In fact, this is a problem in the Bible. In fact, Paul will write that God needed to be both, how could he, this is the question, be both just and a justifier. And the answer comes in the form that Jesus puts himself forth to die on our behalf, paying our sins, so that while we are forgiven, the sin is paid on the cross. He is just and justifier. God's justice is never in question. And when Jesus forgives this man's sin, this man his sins, Jesus is doing so in, with perfect justice because he is banking or he is doing so on behalf of the sacrifice to come. How glorious. How glorious that Jesus forgives. Now notice something here that in verse 7, excuse me, verses 10, we read that Jesus calls himself son of man who has authority on earth to forgive sins. Hmm. Interesting. Jesus is forgiving this guy's sin, but he's also calling himself their son of man. What does son of man mean? Now in the Bible, we have three quick, and I'll just go quickly, what son of man means. Three definitions. One, son of man means simply to be a human being. In Psalm 8, verses 4 through 5, we read, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you take care of him? There, son of man is equated with just being a human being. Second definition of son of man is prophet. In Ezekiel, we find Ezekiel being called son of man. But there's a third definition of son of man, and we find that in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. And this is so glorious. I want you to catch this. And Daniel says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Do you see this? When Jesus is declaring himself to be the son of man, he's identifying himself with a divine figure from the Old Testament who has all authority. What's interesting is this figure, Son of Man in Daniel, refers to the last judgment day when the Son of Man will judge the world from heaven, which is so interesting because in verses 10, Jesus says, excuse me, and immediately Jesus perceiving his spirit that they questioned which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth. You see there? 
this figure is supposed to have authority in heaven on the last judgment day. And Jesus says, the Son of Man also has authority now to forgive. The Son of Man forgives this paralytic man on earth so that he would have no fear when he stands before the Son of Man on Judgment Day. The Son of Man on earth forgives that same Jesus, this man, so that when the day comes to stand before Jesus on Judgment Day, he will have no fear. How glorious is this, that Jesus is forgiveness. Jesus offers forgiveness. Now to go further, we find that Jesus is asking this question, which is easier to say to the paralytic in verse nine? Your sins are forgiven, or to say rise, take up your bed, and walk. So Jesus is asking this question because it is easier, obviously, to say something you don't have to prove. As blasphemous as it would have been, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven. It's much harder to say that and then heal a paralytic. And so Jesus goes on to say, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus is both restoration for our physical bodies and restoration for our spiritual lives. And now we're gonna be ending and we could get the keys up here. When Jesus says these words, rise, take up your bed, and go home, verse 12 tells us this, and he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God. I love this. I don't know about you, but in every story, this story is recounted in three gospels. We find that Jesus is picking up the mat, telling the man to pick up the mat and walk. I love that. Here's why. It's such a powerful symbol. Here comes a man, everybody sees, dragged, carried, on a bed. And now here comes a man carrying that bed. Here is a man who is carried by on his bed, now carrying the bed. I love that. I love that he's carrying that mat. That mat, that bed, used to be his defeat, but now it's his victory. That bed was his predicament. Now it's his prize. That bed used to stand for shame. And now it's his miracle. That bed he used to lie in used to represent ashes of his life. And now that bed, walking with it, this man, I don't know how, what a smile he had on his face. He's carrying his bed as a celebration of God's love and power in his life. And I want to wrap things up and land right here. Do you know that there are only two kinds of people? Either you're lying on your bed of sins 
in shame and guilt, unforgiven, standing for judgment. Or you are someone who has been forgiven. And today, you take that bed and you're not laying in it anymore. All of your sins have become your celebration of God's forgiveness. Do you want today, like this paralytic man, to walk in the freedom of forgiveness? Only Jesus can forgive you. Only Jesus paid your sins. And today, if you come to him in faith, in trust, in prayer, he will forgive you. And that is most important. The healing for our bodies, I don't want to complicate things, will come at resurrection day. That's usually the order. Forgiveness now, healing at resurrection. But today, most important is that you would be forgiven. How glorious is Jesus. He paid for your sins. So I want to pray with you right now. Would every head bow? Lord, in this moment, we want to thank you that you are someone with all authority to forgive sins. And Lord, I pray right now, if there's someone here today who has not stood before you, who has not come to you in prayer, who has not put their trust in you, God, that they would do so right now. Lord, I want to thank you for your forgiveness. I want to thank you that our sins are washed away. I want to thank you that you have the authority to do so. Lord, I thank you that you make our relationship with our maker right. And you didn't sweep up our sins. No, you, you paid the dearest price with your own, own life. Lord, would you help our church be the Christian community like these four friends who know we don't have the answer, who know we are not the answer, but know who the answer is. Would you help us push each other, help each other know you more and more deeply? Lord, I thank you for everything. Amen.